Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tapeheads is the podcast where we watch either a VHS from Lindsay's collection or my collection, and then we talk about it. Lindsay, what film did we watch today? We watched not while you were sleeping. We <laughs> <laughs> we. <laughs> you wish we were watching while you were sleeping. We watched. I know what you did last summer. The 1997 Kevin Williamson written slasher film based on the 1973 Lois Duncan novel of the same name. The significance of Kevin Williamson is that he also wrote Scream. Yes, and Scream was a really important movie for me. Besides just being a great slasher film and kind of sending up slasher conventions, it kind of kicked off a really interesting era where we got a lot of kind of big budget glossy Hollywood slashers which is really contrary to the kind of dirt cheap slashers that we got prior to this. Yeah and even though this film was released after Scream he actually wrote this first right? Yeah which is really interesting to me because I always just sort of assumed that after the success of Scream, which grossed $100 million plus, which is just unheard of for a slasher movie, I just sort of assumed that all these studios reached out to him and were like, hey, what else you got? You want to adapt this, this young adult novel from the 70s? But as it turns out, yeah, he had written this prior to Scream and just no one would take it. And once Scream was a hit, it was put immediately into production and came out in 97, the year right after Scream. Yeah, one of the weird things about this tape that kind of stood out to me was there were no trailers. Yeah, which is so different from my memory of this. Um, I could have sworn that there was... One of the reasons I picked this tape, this is not a favorite movie of mine, I picked it because one of the things that I remembered so vividly of this tape was that they advertised the soundtrack, which is such a relic of the VHS era. Yeah. I could have sworn that there was an ad for the soundtrack because they're really pushing the Kula Shaker cover of Deep Purple's <laughs> Hush. It's that one that goes, na, 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 <laughs> and uh, something like that. What were some of the other bands that were on this soundtrack? A Soul Asylum. The Offspring, Corn, Corn was huge. Corn was huge at this time. I did not catch the Corn song that was in this. So some other bands were Goat, Flick, Toad the Wet Sprocket, <laughs> and Adam Cohen. Which pretty much none of those went anywhere. I don't think. And then Soul the, Asylum yeah. had a short-lived fame. Yeah, Soul Asylum, The Offspring, and Corn are the only ones that I really knew. Were you not a big Toad the Wet Sprocket fan, Lindsay? Oh, huge, but I oh. was like the only one. Either this is just a completely false memory, which is always possible with me, or we're running into a case of the retail copy of a VHS versus the rental copy, in which the rental copy would have a ton of really recent ads on it, Months later, when the public could buy it, they just hack all those off. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's what we're seeing here. I don't know. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't know there would be a difference. But it makes sense in hindsight. Yeah, places like Blockbuster would have to pay like a hundred bucks for a VHS copy because they would rent it over and over and over again, and we schmucks would have to wait until it was released a second time. And in rare occasions, it was released at the same time, but... Those are kind of few and far between. One of the other things that we did for this podcast, which we do not normally do, and I don't think, I don't know if we'll do it again, but we actually read the book that this is based on. Yeah, we read the Lois Duncan book. The book is from 1973. 
We read the 2010 modernized text, which Lois Duncan, bless her heart, uh, attempted to modernize herself as a late hundred year old woman. She was in her late seventies. Okay, mid to late seventies. Excuse me. And the modernization did not work. It just the story and the events depended on them not having technology like cell phones. Yeah, so she'd quickly write herself out of that corner by saying things things that make no sense, like she hadn't gotten his cell phone number yet. She called his parents' house, which... It's like, why does she have his parents' home number? And she, she's calling his parents on their landline. It's like, why even bother modernizing the text? Yeah, there was also one of the characters, Helen, who's also in the movie... You can tell she's a TV anchor for the news. She does newscasting, but Lois Duncan changed it to a webcast. She's famous in the town for her webcast. Yeah, and other things like Vietnam is swapped for Iraq. Which works pretty well. Yeah, and I guess it's a passable... At times it really feels like a find-change function on Lois Duncan's uh, gateway computer, whatever she was using. (laughs) But it was a little off-putting reading. The reason we really wanted to check out the book is because famously... The book and movie have very little in common. The basic setup is similar in that four kids driving home from a party inadvertently hit someone with their car, and they all agree to uh, not go to the police, to just kind of run from it. And then the following year, they start to get cryptic messages from someone who knows. And the book, which is a young adult novel, is pretty bloodless. It's sort of a suspense novel. It's very padded. Not a whole lot really happens in it. Whereas the movie is the opposite. It is a full-on slasher movie. It's completely designed to be that way. It has more in common with something like Halloween. Mm-hmm. You know, It's made to make you jump. Yeah, it's like a Friday the 13th or a Halloween where a killer is slashing his way through these nubile teens. <laughs> and that was a change that Lois Duncan was not happy about. I mean, she felt like the violence is really unnecessary and she found it offensive. You remember why? Uh, yeah, because her, in real life, her daughter was murdered. And I can definitely sympathize with with her feeling that way about screen violence. But at the same time, she described the film as being this super gory movie full of decapitations and blood spurting. And it's pretty tame, all considered. It's, um... I don't know. I mean, there were a few things with the hook that really I don't know. freaked me out. Compared to something like Scream, which is a much more violent film, like, this, a lot of this I felt like was kind of left to the imagination. Like, there'd be quick cuts, and mm-hmm. you'd just see... There wasn't much blood. Yeah. But, um, in all honesty, I feel like Kevin Williamson sort of did the smart thing with this. He took a very dated, very padded, creaky suspense novel from the 70s, and he injected it with kind of things that he was interested in, like slasher movies, the legend of the hook, like urban legends kind of play a big role in this. Mm-hmm. This is a year before the movie Urban Legend came out and kind of ran that into the ground. The setup is about the same as the book. We have our four teens. They are Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Phillippe, and Freddie Prinze Jr., Pretty people. Pre- very, really exceptionally pretty people. Very pretty people. They, I like um, how they paired them by hair color as a, as couples, yeah, too. That was perfect. Yeah, the brunettes and the blondes. Because really, they're not going to mix. You need to keep them separate. 
I'm not exactly sure where some of these people were in their careers, but I know that Jennifer Love Hewitt um, has the Party of Five Association, very similar to Nev Campbell, who did Scream. Well, and she'd already had had some successful films. She'd actually done another feature film called House Arrest the year before, which I saw. I don't know how successful it was, but I liked it as a very young child. And Sarah Michelle Gellar had just started Buffy. Um, That debuted in March 97. This is later on that same year. Yeah, I mean, Buffy was taking that stereotype of the horror flick where the blonde girl who's preppy, everybody loves her, and then she gets murdered by an axe murder after showing her boobs, usually. And so it's taking that kind of vulnerable pretty girl stereotype and turning it on its head and making it so that she fights the monsters uh whereas this was her just taking on that stereotype it was embodying it but as she also did scream 2 this same year which was a, a similar thing where she just kind of killed off yeah really unceremoniously but i mean at least in this one there was a fight and she ran for it she jumped out a window like she really did put up a fight but she was killed she was hooked. And Ryan Phillippe really hadn't done anything at this time, and he he did a little movie called Little Boy Blue. Freddie Prince Jr., I don't know. (laughs) Frankly, I don't know. I think he was really miscast in this movie. We can talk about this later. Yeah, I honestly don't really care about his background. He was really not so great here. Yeah. um, Do you remember watching this movie when you were younger? I watched it maybe in middle school. You know, one of the things that really struck me about it when, both when I saw it this time and earlier, was just kind of how super convoluted the story is Mm -hmm. and how kind of forgettable it is in a lot of ways, too. You know, it's been years since I saw it, but I did not remember anything. Like, there was nothing in it that stuck in my head, not even a scene I do feel that the movie is superior to the book. The, I mean, Lois Duncan refers to it as her little masterpiece. It is not that. <laughs> I really hope it she is, was being I sarcastic hope, when she said that. I hope she was kidding. We're, again, we're referring to this little Q&A that at, the, at the end of the modernized 2010 printing of I Know What She Did Last Summer, the novel. So the, the story is pretty straightforward. Jennifer Love Hewitt gets a note saying, I know what you did last summer. She flips out. I mean, she's already been depressed. She felt the guiltiest of all four about murdering the man. Yeah, a year since this accident, everyone's lives have sort of fallen into disrepair. Sarah Michelle Gellar had dreams of moving to New York and being an actress. Ryan Phillippe is just being really douchey and brooding. Freddie Prince Jr. is the world's cleanest fisherman. He's carrying fish guts around and there's not a hair out of place. No, he looks perfect. His hair is perfectly gelled, everything. He's even clean of acting skills and personality. (laughs) I don't know how I edited this out, but he is so awful in this film. He is seriously flat. Like, every single one of them outacts him. In the book, Ray was kind of this bad boy. You know, he was kind of the one you didn't know about. But um, He's like living off in California. Yeah, he's living off the grid. He's figuring out his life, man. But in this, he is just so blank and so wooden. There's a scene after they hit oh, the guy with their car when they're sort of... Sw- Ryan Phillippe is the drunk one. He's kind of pushing for them to form this pact and never tell anyone and take it to the grave with them. And our hero, Jen for Love Hewitt is really on the fence about all this, so he, like, pins her up against a car and is screaming at her. He's almost choking her. Almost choking her, and Freddie Prince Jr., her, her boyfriend, 
just does nothing. He just stands there and he's like, oh, shit. He's just kind of staring off at like a bounce card off screen or something. I think he was just focused on being pretty. I feel like he might have read the book and just interpreted the character as being really spacey, but that's not <laughs> it. I mean, Ray is supposed to be the off-the-grid one, the kind of spiritual one, and he interpreted that as, I'm just going to stare off into space and be really wooden. And It's really weird, too, because I've seen him in his rom-coms, and he seems to have more personality there. I don't know what happened in this movie that he was just zapped of anything. He's so passive, his character. At the, you know, at the end of the movie, when he's, like, fighting the killer, it feels so unearned. And there's even a moment where Jennifer Love Hewitt thinks that he's the killer. And it's kind of like, how could you think that? I mean, going around killing people is such an active decision that you have to make. He's incapable of making such a decision. One of the things while I was watching, I was just thinking, does his character even need to exist? Until the very end of the movie, he really wasn't a necessary body to that cast. They even kind of sideline him for much of the third act until he comes in again, kind of out of the blue. They're trying to make him more mysterious and kind of cool, but it just doesn't work. And, you know, as much as Lois Duncan characterizes this as blood spraying everywhere, a nonstop kill fest, it does ratchet up the suspense pretty well. I mean, it starts with little things like Sarah Michelle Gellar's hair being cut off and Mm -hmm. some lapses in logic here. Jennifer Love Hewitt finds a body in the trunk of her car that magically disappears like 60 seconds later. In broad daylight in front of a bunch of homes. So that body she found in the trunk that magically disappeared, the body was the character Max, who is played by Johnny Galecki from The Big Bang Theory, which was just really weird to see. Great job playing this role of kind of a dick. And he was better than Freddie Prince Jr. But I Yeah, mean, he kind I, of... why not cast him as Ray? I mean, he would have been a better <laughs> choice. At least he has personality. Yeah, but he did a great job. And he was an addition that was not in the book. I mean, he's kind of there to just pad out the kill count. Yeah, because they... and adds a little bit of tension when they're trying to hide the body because he shows up and he's trying to, like, he's really into Jennifer Love Hewitt and he wants to take her away from Freddie Prince Jr. That sort of thing. It adds a little bit of a kind of a romantic strain and that sort of thing. You know, this is a pretty low body count film too. Again, Lois Duncan, I know that you think this is a big massacre, but by horror movie standards, it's pretty tame. I mean, it's five altogether. It's two of the main kids plus Max, the cop, and Sarah Michelle Gellar's sister, Elsa, Mm -hmm. who interestingly was massively overweight in the book and had this inferiority complex, but in this she's just kind of a bitch. And she's really pretty. Yeah, she's really pretty. Everyone in this movie is great looking. Also, the women, their boobs, fantastic, and sweater sets. It's the 90s. They were wearing sweater sets. Yeah, I don't know what a sweater set is. I I learned this from (laughs) Lindsay while watching the movie. Can you explain? Sweater sets were essentially just like, it's it's a light, really light sweater material, so you could wear it in the summer too, and it's a tang top, and then you wear a little matching, exactly the same color cardigan over it, and it's usually like a short-sleeved cardigan. But they had some really boobalicious ones. Jennifer Love Hewitt wore those the most. Yeah. She's in it on the cover of the VHS. Oh, she's wearing a sweater set in that cover? She's wearing the tank top part. You know, another staple of these, I know we try not to talk about the artwork of the VHS and the posters because that's such a visual thing. The listeners love it when we do this. Yeah. But all of these films from this kind of Kevin Williamson late 90s horror era, 
they all have these really cool like sort of cast photos where it's really uh dramatically lit and all these gorgeous people are just sort of standing in like a v formation all the scream movies had this urban legend had it disturbing behavior all these movies had this same exact style of poster i think even halloween h2o had it which <laughs> Kevin... wow i forgot that existed oh halloween h2o is great i think that's one that holds up from this era so when talking about a slasher movie, you got to talk about the kills themselves. Were they inventive? Were they scary? Were they bloody? How did the kills work for you? I really thought that the first one had the most impact. Yeah, there's Max who, you know, is kind of this outsider in all of this. And he, what is it? He gets a hook through the chin. It's, I think it's like up through that soft part under your jaw that where your throat connects to your head there. That was one occasion where I was like, yeah, Lois Duncan, this movie is pretty bloody. It made me cringe. And this is one of the kill scenes where it makes you feel like the murderer is a ghost. Like this ghost man that's come back from the dead to oh, kill them. That would be such a cool movie. We should be remaking this. No. <laughs> no. But seriously, he's just like, he phantoms in there, kills him, drags him out. And it's really shocking and horrifying. It's very successful. It was a long time until the next kill, which was Ryan Phillippe, one of our leads. So he's up in the uh, balcony where the, the stage lighting and stuff is set up, and he gets hooked by our killer. It's really kind of really quick cuts, just kind of suggestions of violence. It's, mm-hmm. The next kill was then the police officer who's being really rude to cute Sarah Michelle Geller, who's so horrified that her boyfriend was just killed, her ex-boyfriend. There's all these people making fun of this traumatized girl who at least thinks that she saw her boyfriend murdered. Ex-boyfriend. Ex-boyfriend, excuse not me. Not happily. That relationship did not end happily. Yeah, he seemed super abusive and in love with himself. But anyway, so yeah, he's taking... He, the police officer's taking her home and then ends up stopping and gets murdered. I don't know, that one, that murder didn't really hit me. That... Again, it's like very tasteful. I mean, it's not super bloody. I don't know what movie Lois Duncan saw, but uh, it, it's, oh, none of these kills are particularly gruesome. Yeah, and then Sarah Michelle Geller runs for it. Gets into this shop where her sister's being a bitch. Yeah, that's her, what she does. Her sister is one of these people that when a family member is banging on the front door saying, let me in, someone's after me, she goes, ah, and just kind of slowly, she takes about 180 seconds to walk over and drop the keys and slowly open the door. It's awful. While Hookman advances. She was also very, very happy when Sarah Michelle Geller's hair was all cut off. Yeah. She's really kind of the worst person. I mean, if you she doesn't she isn't bothered by the fact that someone broke into the house where her family members live and chopped up Sarah Michelle Geller's hair. Yeah. But anyway, Elsa gets killed and we don't care. Aww. It's really it's really quick. There's blood splatters over the glass, which is a nice touch. Yeah. There's a little bit of a, a little bit of violence there. But again, compared to scream, any of the scream movies or any of the Friday the Thirteenth, very tame kills. But I did enjoy, like, it was a very exciting sequence with yeah. Michelle Geller running away. I did. This was one of the parts of the movie that I enjoyed. Yeah, this was a very exciting sequence. 
And I feel like Lois Duncan should have been into this because it is suspense. I mean, maybe she's just jealous that the movie did it so much better than the book. <laughs> You're so mean to Lois Duncan. I can't stand Lois Duncan. <laughs> I and... still am never going to forget that she referred to the book as her masterpiece. I hate that. I hate that she mischaracterizes <laughs> this rather tame slasher movie as a movie where heads are shooting off. I think we need to assume that she doesn't watch horror or slashers at all. The next and last kill was then Sarah Michelle Gellar. She wasn't able to escape. She didn't have her Buffy steak with her. And this is a scene that I remembered happening differently because I remember it being so crushing. She's running down this alley towards a parade that's passing Mm -hmm. and she's so close and then she's grabbed and killed. But that's not really the way it plays out because what happens is she stops and she looks behind her. She's so close to being out in public where Hookman couldn't get her. Which really has you on edge. And then he somehow leaps out in front of her and it's very odd. And it's again where they could have gotten around it if they had made this more of a supernatural murder. Yeah. But he's really a man. We're really pushing for a ghost Hookman. Whoever's remaking it, I hope you hear this. (laughs) Please just make it about a ghost (laughs) Hookman. We would love that. Ah, the undead. At the end, it's revealed who the killer is. And who exactly is the killer? So complicated to explain. I didn't really remember who the killer was. I I kind of, I mean, I remembered like what the character looked like, but I forgot what his motivations were. Yeah. But the killer does in fact turn out to be the person they hit with the car. Which is one of the biggest departures from the book because the book was all about their guilt over legitimately killing a little boy. The book, the killer or the guy that's attempting to kill them or get revenge on them, he's the older brother of the little boy that was killed. So you you actually kind of identify with him a little bit in his anger. Like he had just come back from Vietnam slash the Iraq War. Depending on which version you read. <laughs> And then he finds out that his little brother is dead and his mom essentially went off the deep end because of it. And his family is just kind of broken apart. And, well, what are you going to want to do other than get the people that killed an innocent kid? Whereas in the movie, it's impossible to sympathize with the killer because I'm going to attempt to explain the scenario. (laughs) I'm going to need your help, Lindsay. It's very difficult to explain. The summer previous to when the movie started... 1996. Let's see. Let's call it 96. This kid, David Egan, and his girlfriend, Susie, were driving. They get in a wreck. Susie dies. Yes. But David survives. David survives. Racked with guilt and pestered by sneaky notes, Mm -hmm. David, we see brooding in the first shot of the film, and Susie's father kills him by drowning him. In 1997. So Susie's dad, Ben Willis... Kills the boyfriend for revenge, and I guess he's just sauntering down the middle of the street, proud of himself for drowning this poor kid, and that's when our our heroes hit him with the car. So... This really switches the moral dilemma at the heart of this thing because all they did was momentarily incapacitate a murderer and then throw him in the water. They didn't actually kill anyone. No, they didn't. And then, yeah, it's weird, though, because it makes you think that he came back to life. He's like some kind of zombie killer, but not really. Well, another interesting departure is when they kill the kid in the book, they don't stop the car. They just keep driving. 
Whereas in this, they stop, they see what they did, they deliberate in the middle of the street <laughs> for a long, for what feels like hours. They're standing out in the middle of the street deciding what they're going to do. Uh, the guy Max pulls up, there's some suspense there, and they throw him into the water, but not before he grabs Sarah Michelle Gellar's crown. She's a, uh, a beauty pageant winner in this version. Because this is, you know, her bright future ahead before they, you know... So kill he, this guy, well, almost kill this guy, and ruin everything in their lives. So he's still alive when they throw him in the water, which is pretty brutal. Yeah, and then they just left him die. Although, I mean, if he's alive in the water, I don't know why they thought that that was going to work. Yeah, so it completely changes the scenario because instead of the relative of a little boy who is killed going out on revenge, it's a guy avenging himself for being hit by a car. <laughs> and it's so extreme because he ends up killing two people who weren't even involved at all. Yeah, the cop... Uh, well, three, because... Oh, he, the cop, the he, police officer, yeah. He, I mean, he kills the cop, he kills Elsa, he kills... Uh, uh, Elsa is the sister of Sarah Michelle Gellar. Max, who I guess is kind of connected because he happened to be there. I suppose. But, you know, at, in the climax of the movie, you know, he's taunting Jennifer Love Hewitt, and he says, having fun, running people over. They're really, like, taking the moral high ground. It's like, dude, they hit you because you had just drowned somebody. But then when you see him in his boat toward the end of the movie, he's just like this regular guy and it's kind of a letdown. He's wearing a baseball cap. This whole movie we've seen him like in this thick fisherman slicker and he's got a hook. It's just, a such, it's just such a letdown when he shows up and the actor's fine. There's nothing wrong with the actor. He's kind of like a poor man's Fred Ward. Yeah. He's just not that interesting to me. No. When you think just... about killers like you know robert england as freddy krueger or things like or mm -hmm. any of the killers really in the scream franchise he's just not that interesting nope just and then his motivation it's just kind of like you guys hit me with a car and threw me into a lake i was minding my own business murdering my dead daughter's boyfriend <laughs> for no reason really like it really just doesn't freak you out would you have liked a more faithful adaptation of the book in the sense of who the killer is? Like, would you have preferred it if they'd actually run someone down and this is like a relative that's avenging them? Because I, It almost might be kind of freakier if it's a relative that's just gotten back from war and is kind of dealing with all that darkness of and pain. That could add a certain realness to it and a certain violence that would make it hit a little harder, I feel like, because he's just kind of like this random bitter guy. Because I feel like they're somewhere in the middle. I feel like you should either, okay, they hit someone and killed him and his ghost is back killing them. Yeah. I feel like that's one way to Make do it. Make it kind of supernatural. Like a supernatural slasher. Or two, they really ran someone over and killed them and this is a relative that's gone nuts. And that's then that's what they do in the book, which is good too. And this is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And it's they hit someone, incapacitated them. I guess he was able to he seemed completely dead. And I yeah. guess he was able to swim his way to freedom. And it's just it's very odd this whole unmasking of the killer. There's this duel on the boat. Freddie Prince Jr. kind of inadvertently wraps a rope around the killer's hand and cuts it off. And Which makes him primed for becoming a real hook man. Yeah. There were two sequels to this movie. There was 
I still know what you did last summer, which is came out the very next year, and there's a direct-to-video sequel, which I haven't seen. For the from life of me, from 2006, years later, uh, I'm sure it's really bad. I can't, for the life of me, remember if he comes back with a hook for a hand. That's a missed opportunity if they didn't. But it's so funny, the end of this movie. It's so anticlimactic. He kind of just falls on the into the water, and, you know, leaving us prime for a sequel. Freddie Prince Jr. looks at Jennifer Love Hewitt kind of in a daze and says, you just understand me, babe, or something yeah, like that. Yeah, just really stiffly. They have no chemistry. And they really this- don't. There's this really awkward epilogue where Jennifer Love Hewitt is happy again, you know. She's having fun at college. She's having fun in college. She's on the phone having this awful conversation with Freddie (laughs) Prinze Jr. where she's like, no, I love you more. I love you more. And it's just like... The two vapid people in the movie are the ones who survived. Like, Sarah Michelle Gellar and Ryan Phillippe were actually real characters and seemed to have passions. Yeah, and but you're supposed to sympathize with the two who survived because they were the nicer ones. I mean, were they? I mean, I don't Freddie, know. I Freddie really Prince Jr. just does nothing the whole movie <laughs> until he accidentally kind of pushes the killer into the water. Well, and then after they finish their vapid phone call, these lovebirds, <laughs> she goes to take her shower because you know you got to see her in a towel it's a horror movie they got to show a little bit more lady body and then uh no she goes to take her shower it's all steamed up in there it's kind of creepy they switch the music and then you see this like written on the mirror in the shower there is like i still know what you did or something and then the guy like crashes i still know yeah there's a jump scare at the very end that's actually pretty effective it is really effective and it was really good but it's like are you now are you taking the supernatural angle because he was pretty dead well i don't know actually no he could be alive again now i realize you know when i think about it they're doing the same (laughs) shit they did last summer they just sort of drop him in the water and they're like well i guess he's dead except he should have bled out like through his hand stump. Well, he probably should have bled out the first time. Like maybe he just has tons of blood. <laughs> He's just filled <laughs> with blood. <laughs> So for much of the film, Jennifer Love Hewitt and company think the person they killed was David Egan, this uh, boy who the killer drowned that same night, which leads her to creepy Anne Heche out in the woods. Yep. It's kind of funny because creepy Anne Heche has this thing for Freddie Prinze Jr. because she thinks that he was a good friend of her brother's and she felt like they had a connection at the wake. Billy Blue is the alias he uses, which is the name of his boat, which comes <laughs> up later. he gets the fish guts, but looks beautiful carrying them. It feels like they're kind of trying to do, like, the creepy backwoods person, like, that sort of horror trope. But it doesn't quite work, because you never really think that think of Anne Heche as a suspect. She seems no. like she's pretty decent in both of her scenes. It's another character where you're kind of like, hmm, does she really need to be here? It's a movie that really suffers in comparison to Scream. I think it's important to keep in mind that this was an earlier screenplay of Kevin Williamson, and he must have learned a lot about the sort of things that he wanted to write, because so much of Scream's brilliance is just kind of in the simplicity of it. It's a very straightforward slasher movie with the twist of it being set in the Mm -hmm. world of people who have seen all these movies like Friday the 13th and Halloween and sort of know the tropes but succumb to them anyway. Whereas this kind of falls into all those traps like the slow-moving killer who suddenly jumps out in front of Sarah Michelle Gellar. 
Ryan yeah. Phillippe is running around punching people with his broken hand in that the cast. Was, that was my favorite part, because it's kind of like, as soon as I saw that, I was just cringing, because I was imagining how much that would actually hurt. And again, these like disappearing bodies, like the one that Jennifer Love Hewitt finds in her trunk, it's the kind of sloppy writing that Scream was just such a testament against. And it was Scream is just such a tight film yeah. that still holds up nearly 20 years later. No, the cast punching should have been caught by the director. Yeah, and that's another issue. The director here is a first-timer, pretty much, Jim Gillespie. I guess he's done some docs and some TV stuff, whereas Scream was Wes Craven, who, of course, is a horror master with Nightmare on Elm Street and many other things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if that played a role in it too, but it just it's it. This film really feels like a step backwards from Scream, and I remember feeling that way when I was younger, and I feel that way, you know, times ten now. I mean, it's struggling even to talk about just because it really doesn't have that much impact. Like there was one scene in the film, like I think when the then the hook man was going after Sarah Michelle Gellar that made me jump a little bit. I feel like there's there it ha- definitely has its moments. I like that whole scene. The chase scene with Sarah Michelle, Michelle Gellar, I feel like, was the most success- one of the more successful parts of the movie. It made use of the back of a cop car, which Kevin Williamson would revisit in another Sarah Michelle Gellar movie, Scream 2, later on, to even better effect. But yeah, you know, I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities here. I think that the idea of adapting uh, a young adult suspense novel into, like, a modern slasher is such a great idea, and there's so much you could do with that, but it does really feel like a some wasted opportunities Mm -hmm. you know i don't mean to sound so hard on lois duncan it's just that i feel like she has this very misguided hatred towards the movie it It is her own work like they did option her book and then what went to screen was not her book at all i mean the skeleton of the story was there but essentially it wasn't her work at all and it might have been mutual this hatred because (laughs) Lois Duncan is not listed in the opening credits. She's listed at the very end of the end credits, which I've never seen with an adaptation of a book. Normally it would be the opening credits or toward the beginning of the end credits, right? Yeah, but this is, they did the producer, screenwriter, director, every single crew person that worked on it. (laughs) Logos for like Dolby. And then Lois Duncan in fine print at the very end. Uh, I, we're not making this up. Watch it. That's how they credit her. We were both laughing when we saw that, actually. Yeah. Take that, Lois Duncan. If I were her, I might be a little pissed, too. If you really felt like you wrote the perfect suspense novel, yeah. and if you're looking at it from that point of view, it's not. But that's the way she looks at it, clearly. And they do something completely different and nutty with it, then I guess I could see being upset with it. Yet at the same time, she can concedes the fact that no one would have ever heard of this book had it not been for the film adaptation. I think she's most popular for, at least the book I knew her for, was Killing Mr. Griffin. Really? Yeah. All right, Sean, it's time. Buy it, rent it, or tape over it. Going into this movie, I really thought this was going to be a rent it. This is a video that we just kind of had at our house. You know, it's just fun, breezy, late 90s horror. But I think I'm going to have to say tape over it. This is not a movie that's aged well. They're coming out with a remake uh, next year. And for once, I'm... Why? 
And for actually, for once, I'm not too upset about it. Like, when I hear that, oh, MTV is coming out with Scream the series, I get pissed off about something like that. But this, it's kind of like, yeah, you know, they might be able to improve this story. They uh, might, that's a good point. They might be able to bring in some of the things that Lois Duncan's terrible novel did right. Like, kind <laughs> of give a more realistic killer. Or just go full ghost. I really just hope they make it, like, the fog. And it's just, like, this dead sailor <laughs> that's avenging himself. I think that they should keep the hook man. Oh, yeah. That works well. It's unclear if this remake will be another adaptation of the novel, like a more faithful adaptation, or if they're just remaking the Kevin Williamson version. I have a feeling it's the latter. It's I have a feeling... probably a remake of the Kevin People Williamson. are way more from... Like, probably when you talk about I Know What You Did Last Summer, with most people, they'll think of the hook man. They'll think of kind of the mythology of this movie and mm-hmm. not the book. But yeah, you know, this is a tape over it for me. I think that this is actually a movie that could stand to be remade. Your thoughts? Tape over it. It's not memorable. It's not that good. And it's not even funny bad. And I want to say I really wanted to like this movie. I have fond memories of it. There's just so many better slashers out there. I frankly would pick any of the Scream movies over this. Scream 1 through 4. I feel like... Halloween H2O. I would absolutely pick Halloween H2O over this. If you were to cast the remake... Oh, God. Who would you cast? I have not thought about this at all. Um, Chris Pratt is Barry. Chris Pratt is Barry. I want to see him play a dick. So we are kind of doing older actors for teenagers again. I kind of like that. I mean, that's what everybody does, right? Yeah. That's the standard. Okay, I'll take that. (laughs) That kind of wrecks my choice. I was going to say Elle Fanning in the uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt role, but they'd be like 10 or 15 years apart I don't know who young actors are. Could we say the guy from that MTV Wolf show... (laughs) <laughs> or uh, Freddie Prince Jr. I'm sure he's a better actor. Um, I'm gonna say a two by four plank of wood for uh, <laughs> Freddie Prince Jr. I like him and other stuff. I I think he was good in the Scooby Doo movie. I don't know. I would like to see Kiefer Sutherland play Hookman. Oh God! I think that he would relish the role, and instead of keeping him in uh, shadow, because we've established that this is a ghostly hook man, he can really leer at people and say, "You've been hooked," and really oh, just no. you know give raspy Canadian catchphrases every time he hooks someone. So Hollywood, again, if you're listening, please give the people what they want. Give us Ghost Keeper Sutherland uh, with a hook chasing down Chris Pratt, L. Fanning, a two by four. We haven't cast Sarah Michelle Geller yet. Let's yeah, who see. do you pick? Who do you pick? Miley Cyrus. Miley Cyrus, done. We got all the answers. I'm imagining her doing the pageant, sticking her tongue out. Yeah, that would be so bizarre. And maybe have Kevin Williamson write it again. Why not? Give him another shot. And of course we need another cover of Hush. Um, who should do it this time? The first band that pops in your head. Go. One Republic. One Republic will cover Hush again. <laughs> Wouldn't it be weird if if the only way that the adaptation is faithful to the 97 film is if they just redo all the songs on the soundtrack? <laughs> like, who are we going to get to redo the corn <laughs> song? Maroon 5. Um, yeah, oh, that's another thing. Adam Levine can play uh, Max. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a good one. Uh, who's going to play Miley Cyrus's sister. Elsa should be played by Rebel Wilson. That would be staying true to the book. A little bit closer, right? Yeah, yeah. They've really got to pick and choose things that worked in the book, 
things that worked in the movie, and also just make up a bunch of ghost shit. I <laughs> also feel like Rebel Wilson would just be hilarious because she'd have so much fun with the part. Another thing that was really missing for me, and it was surprising because it's a Kevin Williamson script, is the humor. I mean, that was a huge part of Scream was that it was kind of a send-up of these movies, and people were talking about pop culture, and they are like laughs along with the gore. So, yeah, I feel like we definitely need some humor in the remake. So, yeah, I, I guess we'll we'll find out in 2016. It's probably going to be a piece of dog shit. It's probably going to be it's probably going to make this look like a Citizen Kane in comparison, but oh my God. we'll see. We'll see. And next week we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to have a guest on the show who's bringing his own movie of choice. The Saint. Yes, friend of the show, Chad Hines, uh, winemaker of Method Sauvage. The Saint is a movie that's very important to him. I think it's <laughs> going to be a great show, probably a longer one than usual. There's probably a lot for us to talk about with this movie. Chad is a very passionate guy, loves movies, loves Val Kilmer, and uh, <laughs> it should be a great time. So definitely check that out when it drops a uh, week after next. I'd like to thank Will Price, as always, for use of our theme, Mandatory Groove. You can check out more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also check out our website, tapeheadspodcast.com, where you can find out more about the show and about us. And you can also email us at tapeheadspodcast.com if you have any questions, concerns, or accusations. That's it for Tapeheads. I've been Sean. I've been Lindsay. And until next time, 